And we're back. The Split Take Podcast. Episode 110 of the Split Take Podcast. The week before this, I was editing the the giant episode we did with the four films with Red Shoes and Topsy Turvy and oh, yeah. Clockwork Orange. Right? What was the fourth and one? And that was a that was like two and a half hours long. It was. It was the longest time we've ever recorded. Yeah. So each episode edited out to be quite a decent length by themselves. And then I was like, all right. I'm really going to knuckle down next week and catch up on editing and edit a few episodes. And then I do absolutely nothing. <laughs> We're so ahead. It doesn't matter. We are so ahead. This episode's going to come out in 2021. Currently working on uh, editing the I'm thinking of ending things. I'm going to actually skip ahead a few episodes. Oh, to yeah, release yeah, that yeah. one sooner rather than later. Uh, and then we'll go back and then back into the normal progression we we recorded with uh other chandler east coast chandler a month and a half ago now and that that hasn't come out that yet. wait the tatami galaxy one the, the tatami galaxy that one, was like yeah. two months ago at this point yeah. we're just about there oh yeah that was more than two months ago because that was recorded when i was in quarantine that was in july that was like early july and it's october no now. no that was late july was it Okay. Yeah. No. I don't know. Uh, it's been a while. I anyway. literally finished Tatami Galaxy the day that I got out of it or started quarantine. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Point is, it's coming out at some point. Soon. Soon. Hopefully. We do have a shit ton of episodes. Yes. And I, I will make a trying to make an honest effort to, <laughs> to catch up. Failing. Here and there, but I think overall I am getting a little closer. Is the way it is. So, plenty of content though. Yeah. So, what have you been watching? What have I watched? Let's see. Besides the movies we're going to talk about today, uh, I watched. Uh, probably took up a lot of time. Oh yes. I I let's see. Okay. Um. So, uh, rewatched Down by Law, which is a Jim Jarmusch movie. And uh, I love it. I love Robert Benini. I've never seen Life is Beautiful or whatever the f- his movie was. You know what I'm talking about? The the Holocaust comedy. I've never seen that, but a lot of the people one, like that one. I've never seen it either, but I have seen his his Oscar acceptance speech. Have you ever seen that? He's a very animated yes, character. He, it's, yes, it's he very is. interesting. Well, that's what he's like in every genre movie is that he's just the quirky Italian man. Uh, that also got me to start. Why watching... cast against type? <laughs> That also got me to start watching this series on Criterion Channel called Fishing with John. Um, John Lurie mm. is... Oh, John Lurie's an actor in Paris, Texas. I don't even know that. Uh, but John Lurie's an actor who appears in a lot of um, Jarmusch movies, his early movies. And he had a show... It was like... God, it, it feels like an Adult Swim show because it's very weird humor, but it was in like the 80s and it was recorded on VHS where he just goes fishing with random people. Random like other actors. He has an episode with Willem mm-hmm. Dafoe where Willem Dafoe freezes to death because they go ice fishing and he leaves Willem Dafoe's <laughs> body. It's funny. But everyone has actually seen a little bit of Fishing with John because do you did you watch Spongebob as a, as a kid? Of course. Do you remember the Hooks episode? 
Yeah, yes. When not well, but yeah. I do well, there is a part of the hooks episode where one of the hooks is being like fished in by a fisherman, and they cut to footage of someone on a boat like reeling it in. That is John Lurie and Jim Jarmusch on a boat from that show ah. that they recorded like a decade earlier. <laughs> you know, SpongeBob is one of those shows that just kind of keeps on giving. It really does for for cinema lovers <laughs> because. The the one the obvious one that comes to mind is the Nosferatu clip yes. that they use. Yes. Which as a kid, who is ever gonna know <laughs> what the hell they're referencing? But it's still and funny. It gets better. Even when you're yeah. a kid, it's still it's still funny. funny. And it gets better as you yeah. as you grow older and you know Oh yes, there's, Nosferatu. there's a fun little tidbit. Everybody's seen Jim Jarmusch without knowing it. Uh I also rewatched um The Evil Dead Two great because i just bought army of darkness for like 12 bucks i'm gonna watch that soon uh the evil dead 2 is a great movie um but woo lad poor bruce campbell that whole movie is just sam raimi beating bruce campbell over the head with dinner plates and planks of wood and throwing him into pits of blood it just looked like a very painful movie um i watched nickel okay i watched a movie on a whim uh the witches which is a mm. movie with Angelica Huston. And it's adapted from the Roald Dahl book. And I was, it was just one thing. It was on Netflix. I'm like, oh, it's getting spooky. I'm going to watch this. And I was watching it. And I'm like, God, this is actually really kind of terrifying for a kid's movie. And then I look up who directed it. It was Nicholas Rogue. <laughs> well, that, that'll do it. <laughs> that'll do it. It's, it's a good movie. It is, it is very dark. Um, so I've heard. I think I've seen a bit of the film. Yeah. A while ago. Well, the actual witches, they have some, like, really disgusting makeup. It's actually kind of terrifying. And a majority of the time is spent with a child turned into a mouse. And they have these cute little mouse puppets that are actually really expressive. But, yeah, it's really weird. It's really dark. And they had to change the ending. Because the ending of the book is terribly dark for a kid's book. Where, essentially, the kid gets turned into a mouse and he lives with his grandma. And then at the end of the book... Um, he doesn't get turned back into a mouse because the, him and his grandma want to go hunt witches and he doesn't want to get turned into a, a, a human again because he mice only lived for like seven years and he doesn't want to live without his grandma. So he's going to die as a mouse so he doesn't have to continue living without his grandma because his grandma is supposed to die soon because she's really old. Well, it's it's Spooktober, so I think I'm gonna check this movie out. It's fun. It's a it's a. There's a new one coming that, out. Did that, you see that, that? Well, that's the funny thing is that I watched it on a whim, and the next day I saw a trailer for the new one. I'm like, I had no idea they were remaking this or making a new one. Neither did I. And the new so one, the, new, the trailer started being pushed on me. Yeah, the new one. Um, I don't. I mean, it looks fine. Uh, it has Stanley Tucci, and the role that Stanley Tucci plays in this movie, in the Nicholas Rogue movie, is played by Rowan Atkinson. Oh, wonderful! <laughs> yeah. Absolutely it's wonderful. Fantastic. Now, I give, I recommend. It's short. It's brief. It's some really cool makeup effects, and yeah, funny. It's really funny too for a kids movie. But that's it. I've been mainly watching Full Metal Alchemist and reading where are you where are you in oh wait hold on with that now oh okay oh well, i still want you to answer that yeah question. i will I'll, I'll just say uh i'm like three or four episodes into season four and what just happened was al met honheim at the little soup stand or whatever that is yes yes i yes. there there are some things in that show where i'm like wait what how is this a thing 
Like I just watched the episode where Dr. Marco like lures Envy out. Oh, yes. and it's one of those things where I'm like, this is a really weirdly far fetched plan. And how does he know how to just pull a philosopher's stone out of his head? But it's I just don't care at this point. There's they, they make some weird logic. It, it's one of those things where you get so invested yeah. that you don't care. And it's so it doesn't it doesn't pull anything like that early on. So you're you're in too deep by the time. Exactly. It does. I would I would say that that is probably one of the very few times when uh, Dr. Marco just suddenly is like, oh, I know how to destroy philosophers. Yeah, that's one of the only times in the series that it it does something without properly explaining it it's weird but yeah again at this point there's just so many characters that i like that i just don't care i'm like yeah whatever I mean, it was fun at least i do like I mean, it's not even completely far-fetched it's just no not it's just explained it's just, to the level that everything else I, is. I believe that it would happen i just would like to have been hint it hinted towards i guess but you yeah. know it's not completely out of left field uh they said goodbye to Ma- may may is that her name the, yeah um i don't know if she's gonna be gone gone but uh yeah, yeah, it's great. I, I've watched like five episodes in the past 24 hours. Between that and reading, and I watched two very long movies this week, so that's why I've been watching that many movies. One we'll get to, and the other one I forgot to tell you that I watched was uh, Stalker, which oh, oh I completely yes. forgot about Stalker. Is it on? So Chandler has never seen a Andre Tarkovsky film, despite the fact that I have given him. He, he uh, I do own. Andre Rublev. Yes. The Criterion. Great yes. Criterion, by the way. Yeah. Uh, and so I thought, oh, Andre Rublev, this is a great place to start with Tarkovsky for me as someone who's seen pretty much his entire filmography. And then Chandler decides to, to watch Stalker <laughs> first, which, uh, look, I'm happy you've seen a Tarkovsky now. So uh, what's the verdict? Well, is, is it on this list? Yes. Yes, it we will be. OK, so then I'll be higher, brief. higher up. It'll be a yeah. while. I'll be brief. Um, well, because what made me want to check this out was that this, there's this other podcast I listened to that this was the movie that I was going to discuss next week. And it's one of those things that I've always wanted to see. So I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll do it. Um, so I, I got it. Uh, and, you know, I, kn- I knew a few things like it's going to be very, very slow. I, I read your first review <laughs> where I'm like, if Jacob Kaufman is putting it on blast for being slow, it has to be slow. Yeah, um, the first time I watched Stalker, I was... It was the first Tarkovsky I watched. Yeah. So it, it, we share that. And my experience was, ugh, it, 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 I wasn't ready or whatever. <laughs> I wasn't in the mood or whatever it was. I'm I'm proud of myself that I sat through it, but it yeah. just was not hidden. But the, the thing is, I, 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 I think it was, it was one of those things where I'm like, oh, you know, I, I, this is the most I've ever wanted to watch Stalker in my life. I'm just going to ride this feeling and finally watch it. So I was very much in the mood That's to good. do it. And um, I, I split it up over two days. Uh, I started it actually at work because I had nothing to do at work. So I was just watching. I was watching Stalker on my desktop at work. And I was really, really into it because I had the headphones on. And it's a very it is a very sensory movie where it is. There's a I, I'm starting to think Tarkovsky must have like grew up in a home with a leaky faucet or something. He has that. The... Wait till you watch Mirror. <laughs> no, but the the movie is just like it's so. 
it's one of those things where I can't tell if it's like really, really well designed from a production standpoint, or they just got really, really like lucky with these locations, because or unlucky because there's a rumor that the uh, the abandoned power plant they oh no uh, filmed at gave them cancer and <laughs> killed Tarkovsky. <laughs> so some of the like the the gook and there's like forgot what scene it was oh, but no. there's like a lake maybe it's near the end and there's just like white stuff floating on the surface yeah yeah that's not good white stuff that's not production well that's stuff. the thing is i'm looking at it, i'm like oh this is incredible uh, especially towards the end when they get deeper into the zone like when there's there's a part where um the i think it's the writer is like he gets to the end of this tunnel and he has to like traverse this really damp gross muck to get to this door it's like a 15 second shot but the whole time i'm watching I'm like oh oh disgusting but now that's that might even make it better when i see it again because those places look disgusting and i'm not usually yeah, a, it's, a, a, it's a very tactile film it's a very with a lot of yeah. texture and and sound to go along with it and you it you feel like you are in these damp places alone and then just it's it's strange and it really does put you in like this interesting vibe well the I understand why people would not like this because it is very slow, but at the same time, it, it's very slow, but it's not, it's constantly engaging because you're like looking around at these long shots of people just walking, but you're like taking in every little detail of this insanely detailed world. And it's just, it's very stimulating because by the time the long shot is over, you've pretty much absorbed every little element of what you see. So you're constantly engaged. It's just not, you're not, you're not engaged by characters or story but there is a good amount of dialogue in this movie when i heard it was like a slow movie in the first shot when you know they just go across the bed and they come back that is the moment where i'm like oh god is it gonna be one of these where it's like really really long shots five words an hour but no it was pretty constant uh tarkovsky is a talking director and that's good that's he's good a lot like bergman in the way that they both like to put their philosophy on screen yeah uh, and, you know, I, I'm not really super into sci-fi, dystopian sci-fi specifically, well, because it's pretty this is easy. the least science fiction sci-fi. Exactly. Uh, because, well, the thing is, I'm like, okay, it's a dystopian movie. It's a Russian director. If anybody understands dystopia, it's a Russian. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> but yeah, it's like, it's a dystopian society, but it's like, it's, it's very, yeah, it's not very science fiction-y at all. It looks urban industrial but not like high tech like especially in the beginning like that first act where it's it's just them in regular sepia toned russia <laughs> i'm just like where are they i can't tell how much of this stuff was made for the movie or it's just russia's just one gigantic train yard yeah one of the good thing because it is essentially the entire film even in the zone you're you're essentially just in russia yeah there's no mocking up of sets or anything there's nothing technology to to signal that you're in some kind of future um and it's just the kind of the the way that tarkovsky has selected his sets and where he's filming it's hard to really place it because it almost looks like it could be taking place in the past as well yeah. at times and it, it, the kind of anachronisms and the kind of lack of being able to, particularly when you get into the zone, you really can't place anything 
of like time period or there's no nothing to ground you. So you kind of believe because the film tells you, oh, it's the future. And you believe it because there's not really much. It's all clearly the present filming, but it's also you can't really ground yourself all that well. Yeah. In where they're at. Just absolutely baffled. Uh- but yeah, I loved it. Great. I'm gonna. I'll stop the discussion because we'll get to it at some point. But yeah, great start. I'm gonna watch it again sometime in the next few months, because I got about two hours through at work and then I finished. It. I finished it, um, yesterday morning at like four in the morning, and I can't tell if that's like I was out of that mood or I was just you know exhausted. But towards the end, I was falling asleep. But it's still amazing. It, the the movies where I am just constantly questioning how this is even real, how it was made. Those are my favorite kinds of sci-fi movies. But yeah, that's everything. I watched Searching again today, but that's not important. Your confidence going into Stalker and Tarkovsky for the first time has given me some uh, motivation to maybe try Solaris again. Which oh no, you don't like uh, that one either. Have you seen the Soderbergh Solaris? I have not. Mark Kermode prefers that one to the Tarkovsky Solaris. Interesting. He also prefers the Breathless remake. I tried rewatching Solaris a second time, and it still wasn't doing it for me. So I think Solaris might be the Tarkovsky that just does not uh, interest me whatsoever. But Andre Stalker, I I did a, a 180 on that. Yeah, you did. Very happy to do that. so. Oh, what about so you like the mirror? Yes. Well. I feel like the mirror gets a lot of praise on the Criterion subreddit. <laughs> does it not? Like, uh, it, I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. It, Tarkovsky we in have general a, does. We have a very, very long way to go until the mirror is on this list. Okay. But it is on the BFI list. And uh, spoiler alert, it deserves to be there. <laughs> Um, but that I don't want to say any more about the mirror. I could talk about that. You're getting my the the gears are like oh, okay. s- starting right. in my head about that because there's just so much you could. Well, it's one of those films just... you could watch it a hundred times and still not get everything. Hmm. All right, then anyway. let's just jump to what you watched. Yes. So I, uh, as usual, watched a bunch of things on the Criterion Channel that were leaving them at the end of the month. Not as much. Actually, last month, there wasn't much that I was like dying to see before it left. But I did see some... Uh, I expanded my African cinema yeah. uh, list a little, which was nice. It's always nice to explore a bit more uh, underrepresented film uh, areas. So I watched I Am Not a Witch from 2017. I think it's from Gambia or... It's from West West Africa. And it's a really good, interesting film. I liked it a lot. It's about modern day witches and how there's still superstitions. And this little girl is accused of witchcraft and she's sent to live in a witch village. And essentially slave labor and other stuff. And it's it's kind of a you can tell that the director is kind of very angry at this practice that is still going on. And the film is almost um ridiculing it i would hope so that's witchcraft in the 21st century it was really great i'm surprised it hasn't gotten more attention 
The other one I watched is Lamb, which is a Ethiopian film from 2015. It's about just about a little kid who has a pet lamb and doesn't want to slaughter it for the holiday. Oh no. And tries to make money. <laughs> oh no. So he can uh run away with his lamb. And it's simple and the landscape shots are beautiful and it it, it was just a nice little little film about a boy and his lamb. Is that like the um What's the donkey movie? Uh, Althazar, Balthazar. Althazar, Balthazar. Yeah. Yes, I don't like that. Have you seen that one? And I probably will purposely mispronounce that film. No, it's nothing like that film. Oh, okay. I just assume a lamb is essentially a donkey. Oh, I rewatched Knives Out with the director's commentary from Ryan Johnson. The, The cinematographer is on there, and then one of the actors is on there. Not Daniel Craig. Great commentary. What? Not Daniel Craig, I assume? No, no. One of the smaller... The Ooh, it's the guy who played the... Not the de- not the detective, not... Um, not Lakeith Stanfield? Not Lakeith Stanfield, yeah. The, the white the guy. Assist- yeah. Oh! He's on there. That's it. Um, who apparently has been in other Johnson films. Yeah, you know what? The last time I saw knives out i was thinking because you know you have lakeith stanfield and you have um daniel craig and i'm looking at these two i'm like okay so you have the eccentric private eye and you have the no-nonsense actual detective and then the third guy i'm like why is this guy even here and then part of me thought is this like a friend of ryan johnson and then i'm glad to see that that was i mean his character isn't bad or anything he just seems superfluous but i can't complain kind of yeah so the the commentary was great. It I think it improved. I found even more to like about the film now. It's um, great because the D, the DP was on the uh, the commentary, so I was looking more at like the shot composition and yeah. the stuff that they did, and it it was already at five stars. But I I pressed the five stars a little harder. Oh, yeah. so that don't don't underestimate Knives Out. It's a great movie. I watched Dogtooth, the Yorgos oh, Lanthimos yeah, I saw you film. That. Uh, that was leaving the channel. Great, great start to October. <laughs> you know, I said to myself, you know, Yorgos, he's described as being this weird director. Like, eh, Dogtooth, how weird can it be? It's not going to be that bad. It was, it was weird. It was out there. Bad weird or good weird? Um, <laughs> so the thing with, with Dogtooth is that Looking at his later films, like The Lobster and The Favorite, they're both very stylistic, but there is a point to the story. Yeah. And the the style isn't the only thing going on in the film. With Dogtooth, I felt that it was all style and no substance. Mm. And whatever substance there was there wasn't enough to sustain the film. Mm. You know, I find that when you know when like first movies are kind of like that you know i find that Mm. it's okay i find i'm more forgiving of it because it's most it feels like to me it's just a director just trying to like shove his identity out there sure it it was good i'll say that uh it was just lacking in a lot of respects that i would have probably liked it to have Uh, and it was just so weird. Like the narrative was just 
so out there and doing crazy things more so even than the lobster killing of the sacred deer or any of his other films that it just was so much without actually you know anything else going on uh, to to justify why it was doing crazy things but it was interesting and it was well made and you can you can i'm happy that he has progressed to where he has kind of toned down some of the 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 initial uh style choices of dog tooth and then kind of brought in more focused more on the on the narratives and the themes and stuff of his yeah film. i feel like his um just the progression from like the lobster to um the favorite what's that one in the middle killing, killing your sacred, sacred deer. deer yeah yeah i feel like the progression just from those three films are like uh they they get a lot less weird narratively they maintain like the same style but he is getting a little more dense with themes and ideas in each movie so that's exciting to see like the lobster when I, the lobster is the first one i saw and it's very much yorgos lanthimos movie it's it's very clinical and weird and um uh, minimal the acting is kind of blunt and yeah flat and the favorite is like nothing like that at least as far as how it's written so that, that's good to see upon a rewatch i really like the lobster uh quite a bit more um, I'd still just I did initially liking that second half, but I do. I I, I love when the dog gets killed. <laughs> I love dogs, but it's funny. <laughs> so yeah, I watched the host Bong Joon Ho to start okay. off Spooktober. Can I just say something about the host? The host would be such a good movie if. The creature didn't look like puke. That that's my problem with the host. My problem with the host. See, if that was my problem with the host, I wouldn't have given it three and a half stars. I have a much more uh, in depth problem, and it's that I got some really interesting characterization. Yeah, from some of the characters, but no real character development that I think they deserved based upon some really interesting ideas that Bong brings up. Yeah. But doesn't develop like the, the, not the father, the grandfather or the old guy has this whole speech about how he's Song Kang Ho's character is a bit slow. He falls asleep all the time. He was deficiently nourished as a, as a child. Mm -hmm. And then it just kind of, stops like there's not much character development going on there with their relationship because yeah. spoiler he dies and then song king ho's character just gets a lobotomy and he's fine uh <laughs> cool like that's great i just would have liked something it's light on the character development and that's that's all it is and i really enjoyed it as a film it's really well made all of bong's uh really fun camera and uh character work in kind of dramatic action scenes uh is all really really great but i would have liked a little bit more from the characters of the film but oddly enough i think the reason um why i focused more on the monster was that i've seen a lot of monster movies it was kind of my favorite thing growing up i've seen way too many godzilla movies and i i love the godzilla movies even though they're giant piles of trash because what i watch them for is the monster stuff 
what any kid would want it for. So the bar for the in-between is set so low for me that the fact that Bong made competent characters that were somewhat entertaining, I'm just like, this is a masterpiece. But then the actual monster stuff, I'm like, oh god, it looks like a PlayStation game. It looks so bad. And I... See, I, that, that didn't bother me. Like, I... I have never been bothered by bad special effects unless they are in a bad movie. <laughs> well, the thing is, like... I love the 2000s cheesy special effects, like especially, oh my god, uh, I rewatched a little bit of the first Spider-Man movie <laughs> with Willem Dafoe's The Green Goblin, and there is some truly baffling CGI in that movie, but it's charming. But this, I'm like, oh, this monster's supposed to be scary, and he's so slimy, and it looks so fake, and with a monster, like, a monster... The way that monster moves and it's constructed, it would be difficult. But there are still, like, so many opportunities where you can just get a little bit of practical in there for, like... You don't have to show the monster all the way. And you're filming it in the dark anyway. So if you had a decent-looking puppet, if you masked that with enough shadow, it would look good. But, ugh, it was just, it was just too much for me. I'll watch it again because I did find it metaphorically. Yeah, I, I'll say that there was, like one or two shots that i kind of cringed at the special effects but the rest of it i just kind of accepted the monster as it was portrayed and i loved then kind uh, of moved on song king life. ho's hair in that movie <laughs> I love, and then at the end how his hair goes back to normal it's like oh it's song king ho is on screen now <laughs> he's reverted back to his actor self i love song king ho yeah the giant child and then i watched a. Uh, some Ingmar Bergman films. Oh, the as, box set. As yeah. I continue. Did you work your, the, the your way all the way up to the seventh seal? Or no. are you going chronologically? Okay. Uh, I had to skip forward just a little bit. Not too far, but it was just far enough that I couldn't race towards it. Maybe I could have if I had put some more effort into it, but I didn't. I will, uh, we'll get into our first movies here, but I'll, I'll make some mentions of those Bergman films that I watched. Uh, when we talk about Seven Seal a little later on. So what's the first movie? I don't I'm not exactly sure how we're going to do this discussion because technically we are reviewing the Return of the King. But you can't really but do at the that. same time <laughs> we've rewatched everything, so it's also a review of the whole trilogy. I didn't um, Did you rewatch all three of them? I rewatched all three of them. I know you only watched Two Towers and uh, yeah. Well, because I, I saw Fellowship back in quarantine, so it's only been like a month and a half, so it's still decently fresh, essentially. Yeah, and I've seen Fellowship a bunch of times. So we are, we are discussing the Lord of the Rings specifically, with an emphasis on Return, Return of, the of the King. King. Yeah, which Chandler just watched for the first time. The extended if edition. You don't know, the Lord of the Rings the. <laughs> Film Trilogy is a film trilogy by Peter Jackson from the early 2000s. It was made in New Zealand, produced by New Line Cinema, and it was it was considered to be very good. <laughs> so I think, sh shall we begin with a little bit of our own history uh, watching? Because I kind of want to hear... Yeah, because I want to hear the you, you recently read the novels and I want to yes. hear what prompted that. And then 
you, from my understanding, you've watched Fellowship quite a few times. I did, yes. When when was the first time you watched that? And the why first didn't time? You, <laughs> why didn't you follow that up with the re- going all the way to the Return of the King? Well, I just want so to that's say, kind of I just want to get the narrative here. Yeah, why we are at why we're watching the Return of the King now. So the first one, the first time I watched the Fellowship. Okay, I just right off the bat, the Lord of the Rings. These movies have haunted me for a long time because we're around the same age. I'm only like a year or two older than you, but you and I both know that since we were children, the Lord of the Rings has been like ingrained in popular culture and not just in a way that it's like a fad. Lord of the Rings memes like helped shape memes in general. One does not simply walk into Mordor. Exactly. But uh, but that's the thing is that fine. all right then, keep your secrets. <laughs> but that's the thing. Unlike other like sources, I'd say the the two some of the most like the, the biggest wealths of memes in meme history are I'll say these three. Uh SpongeBob, Star Wars, and Lord of the Rings. Maybe the Holy Trinity of memes. <laughs> maybe spongebob and star wars have a little bit more um to choose from a lot of the lord of the rings memes get very specific (laughs) but i feel like culturally these things have just been hanging over me for so long and i got into it um i wanted to read the books beforehand because i got interested in seeing the movies around the same time i started reading again um so i said okay i'm gonna read the books and every time I finish one of the books, I'm going to watch the movie and then I'm going to watch all three when I'm done. I finished the first book in 2018. And that is when I watched The Fellowship for the first time was October 14th, 2018. So it's literally been almost two full years since I actually finished the trilogy. Because one of those things that Fellowship I knocked out in about a month, Two Towers took me like a year and a half. <laughs> and then I did Return of the King in like two weeks. Very irregular reading schedule. But, like, I don't know. I got so invested in the books that I'm, well, I got invested in the sense that I wanted to know where it was going. Not in the sense that I should keep reading. But I wanted to know what happened, but I didn't want the movies to spoil it for me. Because I, when I go to these kinds of adaptations, I like to read the book first so I get a working foundation to what these movies will be about. And then I like to see the different liberties they take between mediums. That's just something that's interesting to me because I like film adaptations because I like to see how they transfer certain elements. So it took me two years to finish the books. I've seen Fellowship like five times and I love Fellowship. I've seen the theatrical and the extended versions. So at a certain point, I'm just like, I just got to get through this. I It looked... The books are so good and the movies are so good. I'm like, I was mad at myself for finally not finishing it. So like a month or two ago, I bought the extended edition box sets and I sat down and read Return of the King. And then it took me like another two months to actually watch the movie because it is long. It is a long movie. That it is. Yes. So, yeah, that's how I got to this point, essentially. Interesting. And what... So here's here's my other question. Why... Growing up, why didn't you watch the movies ever? Uh, for the longest time, I just I didn't care about fantasy. I still don't really. There are a few things, fantasy things that I really love, like Lord of the Rings and the Dark Souls games. But fantasy as a whole, because I feel like every 
if it's not great fantasy, it's just annoying to me. Sure. Um, because it it's so easy to just make it all so lame. <laughs> so for the longest time, I was I was intimidated because I thought Lord of the Rings was lame. I thought it was dorky. I thought I was like, I don't want to do that. I'm cool. I'm going to watch Star Wars instead. Now, I don't know if I've ever gone 180 as hard as I have in my entire life. As in 180 just, with regards to... I don't give a shit about Star, Star Wars, Wars anymore. And Lord Brother. of the Rings is one of the greatest things ever. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. I'm trying to... I'm thinking back to ancient history of Jacob Kaufman. Because, like, we had, we had a discussion the other week about my favorite films list yeah and how there's some movies there's a very select group of films on there that that will never leave because they've been with me for so long and are Mm -hmm. so pivotal pivotal (laughs) in my in my growing up with cinema lord of the rings is one of those and it's it's gone on and off the list a few times um, a few of the films and i honestly couldn't tell you when i first watched them because I think I was in middle high school, middle school, middle school, late middle school, when I kind of got back into Lord of the Rings. I had read The Hobbit, quite like The Hobbit, and I had this this feeling in the back of my mind, I've seen the Lord of the Rings, haven't I? And I couldn't, I wasn't sure, like I, it was like, it felt more like a dream than actually having seen them. Yeah. So I can't be sure if I had seen them before, but then I got really into them and I, I don't know where it came from, but I have the VHS for Return of the King. Oh, wow. How thick is that VHS? Is it two? Well, it's it's two. Yeah, that's I thought. OK, to, to add to this complicatedness of like, I don't know where my history of Lord of the Rings began. I have I have just the one copy of the VHS of Return of the King that I remember watching and I don't remember watching the other two. <laughs> so there's a possibility you just jumped straight into there is a possibility I just kept rewatching The Return of the King without really having any experience with the the other two. I don't think that's the case but I don't I can't be sure. Eh, it could explain something. That that VHS got a lot of work on it. <laughs> um, a lot of a lot of playthroughs and then eventually I got the the DVD extended versions, which have just the most amazing cases ever. Um, I, I'm only I'm lamenting the Blu-ray extended versions because those cases are not they go with the, the normal. Whoa, the cases themselves. Yeah, I think it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but they're going with the normal Blu-ray case. A little different, but not anything. Well, to, my, to write home OK, about. maybe the cases are different or same, but I got this one. Where it comes in this neat little box. Yes. What do the the individual films look? Open it up. I've never seen this one. Right. So those are like normal Blu-ray cases. Um, One second. Oh, he's good. At this point, I have multiple copies of every film. This is, and I'll put a picture in the show notes, the the boxes for the the DVDs. Oh, okay. It gets even nicer because on the inside, there's artwork from the film. Yeah, that's better. And it just opens out and the each disc has like wonderful little artwork on it and there's a little pamphlet with it and quite frankly these are perfect and i wish they would have just updated them for blu-ray but well they, we do uh, have they are in there yes yes you do have the same artwork on the, the disc yeah and there's a pamphlet as well but it's not as 
complete. Well, it, yeah. It's just kind of a more complete package. This is all very much a digression. Uh, apologies. I, I kind of grew up on the extended editions and watching the theatrical editions was kind of a strange experience for me because uh, I had seen the extended editions so many times yeah. that watching it without some scenes was weird. Anyway, I really liked Lord of the Rings. Especially the third one. Yeah. Especially the third one. Although I will say, my from now on, when I rewatch the trilogy, my preferred will be extended, theatrical extended. Okay, we'll get into that. <laughs> so, that, that's a bit of my history. I kind of have fallen off the uh, Lord of the Rings bandwagon in recent years. I uh, haven't rewatched them in a long time. Mostly because I saw The Hobbit, and then we I mentioned this before. Uh, my interest kind of fell off after those films finished releasing. Hadn't seen any any Hobbit or Lord of the Rings film essentially throughout college, uh, although at the very end of senior year is when I started yeah. thinking about returning. So, Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. Specifically, we'll start with that and your thoughts on that. What did you think of the extended edition? Well, okay, so there's, there's a, a lot of key scenes. I was looking up some of the differences, and... I am just amazed that Peter Jackson felt that this edition was a little too... It's like a fan edition, essentially. Because there's a lot of really key stuff in the extended edition that I think is just like, you can't really take that out. And I can see why. Because um, it's a four-hour movie. But what's amazing about it is that... It's probably the longest big-budget yeah. Hollywood film ever. Yeah. In modern times, at least. Well, Endgame was close to three hours, but still not as long. But the thing is, what blows my mind is that it's four hours long, but I can honestly say it's entertaining throughout the entire thing. I don't know if there's a single dull moment for me. Maybe when we get those flashbacks with Arwen and Aragorn. But that stuff is like the weakest part of the entire trilogy to me is the Aragorn Arwen stuff. At least in the last two. It's pretty okay in the first one. But there is... Like, it still feels like four hours, but it the story's constantly moving. And I do find it interesting that people have different preferences as to what sides of the story they prefer. Because everyone oh, I know... I thought you were talking about they have different preferences for what's their favorite film in the, the trilogy. Oh, yeah, well, that yeah. we'll get to. But, yeah. but Like, I don't know. Especially the Two Towers. Um, I have some friends who... We're like, yeah, I like the two towers, but I don't really like the Aragorn stuff so much as I like the Frodo stuff. Really? Yeah. And some interesting. Even, even some of my friends have said like, oh, I actually my favorite part of that movie is Merry and Pippin in the trees. Well, I've heard people that their least favorite part of the film is Merry and Pippin in the trees. I, I'm pro tree. I enjoy tree. Yeah, I, I am, too. <laughs> it was interesting. I, I was listening. I watched the uh, Ebert and Roper reviews of these films which yeah. are on youtube and they, they they kind of go through an arc like the three reviews they have have an arc of their opinion of the trilogy and by the end they're they're on board but for the second one for two towers they they were both like aragorn awesome but frodo got the shaft in this film and it's not <laughs> as interesting i hear a lot of criticisms about that and i've never understood it no i don't either because i i think each section it's true that the film focuses more on the 
Aragorn and the the Rohan arc, but it spends a good deal of time with Frodo and Sam and developing yeah. that, and it's not like nothing happens to them in the film. A lot happens. But okay, it's, important. it's a four-hour movie, and a majority of Sam and Frodo and Gollum stuff is just them arguing and traversing through grimy mountains. Do you really want that to take up most of the runtime when right everything else is and just Gollum's a war the for most the interesting world? part of that not yeah. even frodo and sam i can understand um because i felt this way too because you know i feel like if i watched them all in a row i wouldn't feel this way but when i watched return of the king like towards the like last half i i'm like oh yeah frodo's the main character of this story technically I know it's an ensemble and there's a lot of characters and a lot of different goals and stuff, but I, I think he is the main character, at least for the whole trilogy. Look, looking at like the, the arc of the whole trilogy, yes. Yeah. But this one specifically, he is kind of split between everyone. And I think that works just because of how far separated they are at this point. Because Fellowship, mm-hmm. it makes sense that he's the main character because it's just one group of people and you have to have one person. But as soon as the two towers goes and they're going in opposite directions, they're getting so far from each other that it's kind of hard to still make him the main character without it feeling weird that you're devoting so much time to this side character waging a war. Yeah, it's a bit like uh, Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. Where you have Luke and Yoda and at times that can seem like the less interesting story. Yeah, because with Han and Leia, who are given equal amount of screen time, they're the ones that get like the action and the space chase sequences. And we may be more invested uh, in. It's hard. So it's kind of like that, except with the two towers, you have three storylines going on at once. Mary Pippin. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. And then Frodo and Sam. (laughs) Yeah, you have. I think you could even make the case that there's four storylines going on in Return of the King at one point, and they slowly start to go back together. What, with uh, Pippin and the king? Well, you have Gandalf and Pippin oh, go yeah, to Minas yeah. Tirith. Then you have Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli go off and do their thing. And then you have Rohan with <laughs> uh, Merry and Eowyn. And then you have Frodo and Sam. Yeah. So the, there's there's a bit going on. Yeah. There's a reason this movie is four hours long. Yes. <laughs> But another common criticism criticism that I never understood was that it takes too long to end. I don't know if you agree with that. Okay, I don't. (laughs) But I understand. Yeah. Because the way that Peter Jackson edits the ending is there are a lot of fades in between multiple scenes. Especially right after the ring is destroyed and they have that big fade the bed which i guess makes sense because he's waking up but continue that one i can see upon like a first viewing in a theater yeah that one might seem like the most like oh it, it's finished now oh but it's not and upon re-watching the film that one becomes a lot less problematic and i think the the only one that is like okay you could have hurried up this fade is from the gray havens to sam walking home Yes. Because the Greyhaven sequence could be the ending. It could. And then there's like this little scene at the end, which is where it should end. And it just could have signaled a bit more that it wasn't quite ending yet. Yeah, yeah. Um, through the editing. But other than that, I don't think you could... The the editing upon first viewing might be a little frustrating, but upon rewatching narratively, 
you can't end it sooner than it ends. Yeah. But no, it, it makes sense just because these these movies are so long and the stories are so vast that one simple little wrap up wouldn't do the story justice. It needs to slowly kind of just settle down and every scene ending scene there's just so much catharsis in what's happening i go i don't know how somebody could not be like oh hurry it up aragorn gets married sam gets married frodo writes the book bilbo bilbo leaving on the boat breaks my heart but it's still very uplifting i just can't Whenever understand bilbo says uh i think i'm quite ready for another adventure <laughs> just gives me the biggest smile in the world but that's the thing is that this whole movie is just god this it's so inspirational there's so many like rallying moments in this movie and it feels like a really solid payoff especially when they start gathering the forces for the final battle like when i was i think one of the things i snapchat of the group was the beacon lighting sequence yeah oh yeah the famous oh yes beacon lighting sequence. oh yes it's just God, it's hard to not get excited at that point. You get chills. Yeah. It, it This is one of the most emotionally involving films ever made. Just on, on a level of like you're getting payoffs and mm-hmm. really involving sequences that are just created to kind of trigger those emotional responses in a way that feels earned. And yeah. not, like it's not ever like kind of milking the emotion out of a scene. And the music helps a lot, too. Yeah, which I I think doesn't get enough praise. The music today. It get yeah, it gets a lot of praise, but if you ever look at like best film scores. No, I agree. Uh, Lord of the Rings doesn't get mentioned nearly enough, although I think it is quite possibly the best example of a franchise film score. Okay, but I just want to talk about this ratio real quick because this this is a this is a tweet that I read from famous film critic David Ehrlich. And now, granted, this was a few years ago regarding Game of Thrones, where he said, like on Twitter, he said, it's rare that something this popular is this good. Obviously, that was before like the last two or three seasons. But I feel like the ratio of popularity and success to actual like quality. I don't know if there's a better ratio than Lord of the Rings. There is a Star Wars. Yeah, yeah, we uh, well, I was gonna say we could get into the Star Wars <laughs> issue because uh, it is an issue, and th- there's just so much to talk about these films. I know. I want to bring up since we're 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 bringing up this idea of this is a really great trilogy. Uh, I don't know if anyone has ever thought about it, but there are two kinds of trilogies, and if if no one's ever thought about this, well, okay, I'm I think gonna, I know where you're going with this. I'm going to try and coin some term terminology okay. here. All right. So we have there there are two kinds of trilogies: a narrative trilogy and a named trilogy. A named yep, trilogy is a episodic trilogy that is a trilogy by happenstance. Yeah. It is something that you could film another movie for and just continue the story. The best example of this, and I think the only competition Lord of the Rings had for best trilogy of all time was the toy story trilogy, but they filmed, they made another movie. Yeah. <laughs> which they can, and they can keep making movies. Cause that each of those films are their own contained story. Yeah. They, they do can, they do continue and develop characters, but they don't necessarily need to exist. They exist on their own. 
Okay. Like they tell complete stories. It's not like there's a goal at the beginning of the first one that is resolved by the third one. Yeah. This goes for the before trilogy. This is a named trilogy. They could make another if they really wanted to. Yeah. I'm curious about this one because this I agree with these terms. Um, this is what I was thinking. This is this is something I was thinking when I was watching the movie where I just thought, okay, like I understand why Ebert and Roper had that sort of gradual 180 on the trilogy as it went on, because you really can't judge the each movie until you've seen them all and understand how like expansive they all are. They're so interconnected that I don't see this as three movies. I see this as three parts of one giant story. Um, but I'm curious to see, like, by those terms, where would you put the Apu trilogy? So they aren't like hard cutoffs. There yeah. are some like middle ground areas. Star Wars is an interesting one where I think it's quite clearly a narrative trilogy. It The first one starts out, they're trying to destroy the Empire and Return of the Jedi finishes with them destroying the Empire. At the same time, they are all very episodic films. They're not leading into one another directly as Lord of the Rings is. So it's not not like a full-on narrative trilogy. Yeah. And then with the Apu trilogy, I... Oh, I was just going to say, the only other comparable trilogy for me is the Apu trilogy, because even though it's not as narratively connected between each movies, I got this gradual sense of evolution and catharsis from movie one to three that I, I think, honestly... Only Lord of the Rings and the Apu trilogy have come close to. I think you could make an argument. It's not like a clear cut kind of thing. I, I think I could also make an argument that the first three Pirates movies are <laughs> almost not not fully, but they are a yeah. narrative trilogy. Where they, is they do get it does get resolved regardless of, you know, the fact that they decide to make more prequel trilogy. That's a that's an actual that's a narrative trilogy. Oh, OK. Because it is, it's it's setting out to tell a story in three films. So you're saying that the prequel trilogy is just as good as the Lord of the Rings trilogy? No, I'm just saying it's the same type of trilogy. <laughs> I know, I'm just kidding. narratively. I just wanted to see if you'd admitted. Trying to think of uh... obviously the good and the bad and the ugly is the most episodic trilogy ever. Godfather trilogy. That's that's just a name trilogy. It doesn't need to be a trilogy, but it is. I feel like kind of the 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 way to understand this is if at the beginning, before the first film was made, the filmmakers were like, we're making we're telling a story in three films. Yeah, it may be episodic, but we're telling a single story. Mm -hmm. That's like if there was the See, idea that's funny because that I never got the feeling of that from the original Star Wars trilogy. Right. But in the end, because I don't think when the, when the original Star Wars was made. This is kind of the exception. Yeah. When A New Hope or Star Wars was made, it was just a film. And then it became a trilogy later on. But that trilogy is telling one kind of story. Anyway, so uh, to bring this back to Lord of the Rings, it is quite possibly, at least in terms of narrative trilogies, in terms of a, a story told over three films, it is the best trilogy. Uh, I... I... I want to disagree, but I don't know if I can. For me, it's either this or the before trilogy, but they're so different. Well, I that's why I said a narrative trilogy. Oh, yeah. I think yeah, it yeah, gets, right. if you include everything, it included like episodic 
just kind of it because happens it's, to be a trilogy. Yeah, because it's the most complete. Everything that is set up in Fellowship is paid off in Return of the King. And that's partially reflected by the fact that it's the same filmmakers setting out to make three films and they film them all at the same time. Yes. So it has this kind of sense of cohesion that so many films don't these days and may never will again. Like this is, there's a lot of stuff that happened in the making of this film that I don't think we're going to see again, at least for a very long time. Very all together in one Very place. much a lightning in a bottle situation. Yes. Specifically about this movie, uh, I think of the three, I maybe it's just because this is the most tense of the three movies, but this is also the funniest of the three movies. I don't know. I don't know about that claim. I can't possibly. Comment. I think this is solely because of Gimli. And I just want to throw this out there. I honestly think Gimli's the most perfect comic relief character ever created. I think one of my only one of my only complaints oh, with no. the Return of the King. Oh no! And uh, by the way, I don't know if you've noticed my uh, uh, favorite movies of all time list. I've uh, I've put it back on there now. Oh, did you? Yeah, oh, I booted off La Ventura. Um, yeah. Good. Well, we'll get to that later. Anyway, so I think Legolas and Gimli could have used a little more character development because they get a lot of interesting stuff in fellowship and then they're friends and it just, they stay static that way and that's fine. Yeah. I just think there could have been a little bit more room to develop them. Not sure what that is. I agree. And this is a small comment. They kind of take a back seat for this film, even though they are prominent, they are prominently featured they're integral parts of the action and the storytelling mm-hmm. for Aragon. Aragon. <laughs> Ignore me. I'll cut that out of the audio. No, please keep it in. I'm ashamed of myself. Anyway, yeah. So that, that that's the only thing I think that could have been just just developed a little bit. No, more. I agree because I, I agree partially. They they do just kind of have their um arc in the first movie, I guess. Movie and a half, maybe. Um, but they have such a great dynamic, even yeah. yeah. Although you could say a lot of what they were doing is kind of retreaded from the two towers. Like I think the two towers kill competition is hilarious every time I see it. <laughs> um, I think that was my review that I wrote for the second Lord of the Rings movie is when Gimli's like, twitching because he's got my <laughs> axe embedded in his nervous system. <laughs> Although I will say this one, I, I even said in the Snapchat again, where the whole time I'm watching, I'm like, where are the dwarves? They're just in ah, the mountains yes. the whole time. I know that's more. They of a have their own the wars. They're fighting. But. Yeah. But no, I, I love these characters so much, especially um, now. I'll say this. Uh, one of the things that when I read the book that bothered me. Was the um, the dead army that had their debt to Gondor. Yeah. Because in the book, I'm like, this is such a weird thing to just throw into your narrative because it feels like a giant cop out, like a deus ex machina sort of. And it still kind of does. But the way that they go about it in this movie, it makes it better for me. It's funny because you can almost think of it as they're going on a mission to recruit the deus ex machina. (laughs) But that's the thing is it still is deus ex machina to me 
but it's such an earned one because it's not something that comes out of nowhere. They still have to work for this. And it's a very interesting scene. It's one of those things that I'm like, why would you cut this from the actual theatrical release where they don't give the dead king any dialogue? Wait, no. Never mind. That is, is that is that is the book. In the book, the dead king doesn't speak. Wait, or am I thinking yes. so, Is that yeah. what happened in the theatrical cut? The dead king doesn't speak. I don't know. I think there is minimal dialogue. Yeah. Uh, but the, the sequence is very trim. Yeah. Here's the other thing. And it's spooky. Is the the siege of Minas Tirith pays off emotionally every character that it needs to. That every that Eowyn, Theoden, Mary, Pippin, Gandalf, they all have their proper resolution in this fight. Yeah. Everyone we care about. And the destruction of the forces of Mordor is when you really think about it an afterthought and that's fine because we don't care it's not like there's a villain there that we need to properly resolve and the witch king does get his comeuppance in the end Mm. uh quite satisfactorily so everything that matters is resolved in a way that is not deus ex machina and the fact is that the siege of minas tirith is not the ultimate climax of the film which if it was this this army of the dead would feel more kind of poorly uh, a poor narrative device yeah but since it is essentially just the ending of the middle the second act of the film it's the thing that sort of evens the playing field right it doesn't save them it just sort of puts them on level ground and they're so that's why i think it's okay I know that Peter Jackson had a cameo in the two towers. Is he in the return of the king on one of the pirate ships? He's the guy that gets uh, shot by Legolas. That's what I thought that okay. Gimli Gimli's like, mind your aim. <laughs> I will say ah. his, his director cameos are not very um, intrusive. Like other ones are when you know they're there, they're kind of intrusive. Yeah. You're, you're waiting for them. If to- we're talking about intrusive, there's not one but two Wilhelm screams in this movie. Uh, yeah. This joke has not been funny for nearly a century. I don't know why people keep doing this. But it's one of those things that I... So much of this movie, if I saw it like when it came out, I would, or maybe even like a decade after it came out, I would think, oh, that's cheesy. But I'm sort of nostalgic for early 2000s cheese at this point. That I'm like, oh, okay, that's, that's fine. As I've mentioned before, I watch reactions to things on YouTube. Uh, it is a guilty pleasure of mine. Yeah. I don't. I'm entertained by it, but I don't like that I'm entertained by it. <laughs> if that makes sense. And it's mostly also just because I like seeing other people react to something that I like. Yeah. And I want to see like what what are other people uh, saying with this? I've been doing that all week with the minecraft stuff but continue yeah anyway there there have been particularly over the course of quarantine and of coronavirus this year there are quite a few uh, full trilogy reactions of lord of the rings on youtube Um, (laughs) at least 15 that i've seen Um, (laughs) jesus uh, by people who have never seen the films before in many cases people younger than us yeah so you know generation who may not be nostalgic for the late 90s early 2000s 
pretty universally the the films work for everyone who watches them mm-hmm. and i think they're just going to continue to prove their yeah. their staying power as we as we move on further and further away because it's been 20 we're approaching 20 years yeah since fellowship since they've been since yeah. fellowship yeah but another important aspect of this trilogy that i think makes them influential is that this right here this is this is eighty dollars. I spent eighty dollars. This is eighty dollars for a film school. There is an entire film school in this box, and I'm not the, I, the behind the scenes of Lord <laughs> of the Rings is legendary. It is because it's one of those things that like like we said it's a it's a flash in the pan, lightning in a bottle situation, but it's documented so well where you can deconstruct every little thing about why this works so well. Especially for a movie, uh, the whole time I'm like, this is a this is a, a huge gamble, but everybody appears to be ready to like capture this magic and the amount of depth to these special features for a trilogy they didn't even know it was going to be good is just mind blowing, and I'm very happy that it's there, and I'm not even close to getting through it all. It's like what, twenty twenty five hours of special features. There, there's. Like nine hours for every single film yeah. if not more and they it's go through crazy. everything production design score costume design filming adapting it's oh my god absolutely great yeah and yes it <laughs> i need to rewatch them it's they're inspirational it's daunting yeah how much there is to watch like where if you begin you're on such this long odyssey of behind the scenes stuff that it's kind of like watching the actual movies gonna take so much of your time but it's one of those things that but it's worth it like you know just watching just watching the movies by themselves without any real filmmaking knowledge or interests they're great movies but like with most movies when i watch the director commentary or the bts and i start to understand how it all came together i get such a bigger appreciation for it so now I'm like, oh god, if I watch all these, is this going to be my favorite movie of all time? Now I don't know how it could even get better. I forgot. There's so there's the behind the scenes stuff, but then there are commentaries <laughs> on every film. Commentaries, <laughs> multiple, with different departments. <laughs> there you could spend months and still never finish the behind the scenes material. Can I just say that I wish there's one thing that we should normalize, and that is character commentaries for films imagine watching an entire fellowship or two towers commentary by gimli gimli not jonathan davies gimli (laughs) no i want both of them you can't just do one character legless and gimli gimli commentary uh hobbits commentary (laughs) orc commentary the Saxville Bagginses watch The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> it's just three hours of displeased grunting. That's one of my favorite parts of the trilogy is when they get back to Hobbiton and you have that one grumpy hobbit who's just like... Bruh. Still there. First film. That hasn't changed. But as far as the catharsis go, just to bring it back, like, we talked about the score and how great the score is. When they, like, reprise the little hobbit theme towards the end... I did the I did the Italian hand motion because that's like at that moment, I'm just like, I want to break down. It's just so good. Mm. It's one of those movies that that is a consistent. Tearjerker from 
from everyone, <laughs> all sexes, all ages, anyone. It's very. It's hopeful. hard not to be emotionally affected by something in this film. There are so many moments that could finally break you down. Yeah. And it usually succeeds for everyone, at least on at one point or another. You know, one thing that I appreciate about the movies and the books in general is that the it's so very seldom is a movie this clear on who is good and who is evil. This is like the most stark good versus evil conflict ever. Where every good person is a 100% good person and every bad person is a disgusting, scary orc or Sauron who's the most evil thing ever. Where his only personality trait is, I'm evil. Nazi. (laughs) But at the same time is that you have this super straightforward good versus evil narrative. But you have so many of these other things in them. There's like conservationism. It's anti-war it's like there's some immigration stuff in there and it's just you can read a lot into it while it's still so painfully simple like one thing that was pointed out to me was just how sam in general has like the attire of a world war one soldier where he's got the backpack with all the stuff in the back and he's going through the trenches and he's like this little boy from a little town out of nowhere thrust into this world ending conflict and i'm just like i can see the veteran in tolkien in this but it still works on a surface level of just being good hobbits, bad Sauron. That veteran status and thinking about that in the end mm-hmm. when uh, Frodo makes the decision to to leave the Shire and he's like, it's it's been saved, but not for me. You think about that in the context of PTSD and everyone returning home to England, particularly Tolkien and, and seeing, you know, it's not the same place that you return to. And, you know, you've you've gave so much of yourself to save this place that you love so much and then you return and you can can't love it the same way that you did yeah when you left it very powerful scene it's heartbreaking sitting in the the inn or the tavern where they're all just sitting together and the life hasn't stopped for a moment they're all just chilling and no one in there knows what they've just gone through that's another thing that you like you, you add the war context and you're like oh wow that's that's pretty crazy and, you know, it's subtle. Like, a scene like that, there's not dialogue that expresses this. There's nothing, no big point to be made. It's just they're sitting. And it's the contrast of, of them kind of being silent and, and everything just going on around. them. Mm-hmm. And for a big budget blockbuster to express an idea so simply like that. Yeah. That that's such a complex idea that, wow. Yeah. It, it's just, and there's stuff like that all over the film that it's just the things we don't see these days in, in our big budget. Yeah. Well, to be fair, that's things you didn't see back then either. It's still no, an anomaly. never. Well, okay. As far as depth and scale. Yes. The, these are some of the biggest films ever made. Yeah. People, people like to say that a uh, end game is really big and it is, but it feels smaller in a way well because a lot of the it's really hard to separate the marketing from the movie um and especially endgame you have a lot of characters but maybe it's because you it's a lot of cgi where you don't feel that scale whereas when you're watching like the battle of helm's deep or the battle for 
Gondor or whatever, and you see all those people fighting, and you see all those people who had to don all that crazy makeup. Those poor orcs, those actors who played those <laughs> poor orcs, I can't even imagine. Yeah. Especially the game. It, it's a lot. It's just, you know, you can watch Endgame and you can be emotionally satisfied by it. Yeah. But then when you watch that and then you watch Return of the King, it it just lays bare the inadequacies of that <laughs> ending as a film. You can still be satisfied by it. It's well, just the, the filmmaking isn't up to snuff. No. But this movie especially, I find it interesting that his horror creeped up in this movie more than the other two. Like, you know, aside from like the, the dead army, I I don't think this was in the book, but the fact that they just the orcs just catapult the skulls of the writers. <laughs> I'm just like, God, that's that's metal. Every that's once a- in a while, Peter Jackson really kind of kept his his early splatter horror sensibilities yeah. down while making this trilogy. But every once in a while, if they come out <laughs> or a waterfall of skulls, <laughs> that's where, you know, like Peter Jackson's like, Rubbing his hands together, like, just get out. Not in the book, but I want it. Yeah, I need to remember. The book is like that part of the book is like ten pages, if that. It's really interesting uh, reading the book and then going to the film. Partially because half of Sam and Frodo's journey is in two towers, and it's moved here, and Mary and. Or, no, Pippin and Gandalf already they begin Return of the King writing to Gondor yeah. in the book. And here it, it goes back a little bit. So it's there there are some significant reshufflings and changings. But it's all for the book. The better I feel. Yes. I I can't pull anything off the top of my head that I, I would really complain about. And I, I, speaking of of things to complain about. There were two extended scenes that I thought were entirely unnecessary, but the rest of them I thought were there for the better. Yeah. Can't remember what the first one was, but the second one was when Sam and Frodo first get into Mordor and they get caught up with the the orcs. And they're with that company of orcs and they have to get out and it feels like just get on with it. This is unnecessary. It doesn't develop. They've already been through a bunch of struggles. This just feels like slowing down the plot in an unnecessary way. But seeing as how there's half an hour of extra footage in the extended version and I only really have an issue with one scene. It's pretty good. Well, that's the thing. There's most of the scenes I don't have an issue with, but there's some where I'm just like how is this ever cut like the original the theatrical release does not show the death of saruman right and christopher lee was very angry with peter jackson for a great many years about that which i get it like how do you just not (laughs) well the the rationale and i think they talked about this in the behind the scenes which i'm assuming you haven't got to yet is that the two towers was saruman's film and they dealt with him there yeah. And they didn't want to distract from Sauron being the main driving antagonistic force of the film by beginning it with the death of another antagonist. I don't care for that rationale, but I see why they did it. Yeah. Cuz I do I I like I like Sauron, Sauron's death. Yeah, same. That's poetic. Wait, did you read the books? 
Yes, it's been a while, but I've. Um, do you remember how Saruman dies in the the books? Oh yeah, the scourge, the scourging of the Shire. Yeah, I always thought that was a pretty cool ending, but I guess I like this one better. Oh, there there are a few things from the books like Tom Bombadil and the scourging of the Shire, that a shit ton of Rangers too. I always forget that's yeah. not in it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there are a few things that Tolkien fans have complained about their their omission oh, in the yeah, films that's fine. i think it is they are co- the correct decisions and i i'm with them i would have loved to have gotten those scenes and seen them but that doesn't mean that it's right for the movie and yeah, they wouldn't have been you know what happens when you try to recreate the movie from the book one to one you stretch it over three movies one book for three you know movies. not even that so Hobbit i'm trip. currently going through the hobbit uh, <laughs> whether or not this is ever actually going to be a thing but i'll bring it back up <laughs> so i'm going i'm reading the hobbit and i'm annotating it oh my god very precisely as to what they have adapted and what they have cut out and i actually have to say that the hobbit movies get essentially an f for adaptation <laughs> there is so much cut out changed and manipulated that any one of the decisions they made didn't like affect the scene um, yeah. irrevocably. Didn't change it completely from the book, but taken together, everything that they added and changed makes those three films entirely different from the book. Interesting. Because I never read The Hobbit, and I want to. It's an easy read. With that being said, uh, I was just very, I, I was harsh for a second there on Peter Jackson, but then I will say that there are a great many things in The Hobbit that would have been absolutely awful on screen that Peter Jackson, <laughs> showing his experience from Lord of the Rings, made really good, smart decisions in, adapta- in adapting it. Yeah. But those are kind of few and far between and overshadowed by a lot of nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this is your favorite then of the three. As I grow old, <laughs> as I experience them more, I, I think fellowship is the best, the, the most well-made of the trilogy in terms of a cohesive narrative, in terms of filmmaking conventions of story and other things and character development and arcs and stuff. But Return of the King is the more emotionally satisfying and the more involving of the of the films and i I think it's still my favorite yeah but fellowship is still still great return of the king is just a giant climax it's a climax of the whole story so it's hard to not be interesting i also want to like make mention that in the the ebert and roper reviews ebert's like these peter jackson has made these into action films and i really want you to look at the films dear listener and ask yourself, is The Lord of the Rings really an action-centered trilogy? Because there's a lot of action, but in a four-hour film, I think 75% of the film is nothing to do with action. No, I agree. And it, it's two hours before you get to the Siege of Minas Tirith proper. And it, it really builds up to it. And same with Helm's Deep. Like you, Oh, yeah. Two Towers, you have essentially the... The warg battle and then helm's deep and that's it where's the war there at? there are some actiony things but they yeah. are just very small 
in a, a mostly fantasy drama kind of thing going yeah. on. No, my favorite scenes are just Gandalf lecturing people. Oh, speaking of great comic relief, Pippin is slowly becoming one of my favorite characters. And you mentioned how like Gimli is one of the best comic relief characters. And he is because he's the funniest part of the films. <laughs> but one of the best things about Pippin is that he is a comic relief character whose comic relief stems from their character and that character that characterization is important to the plot of the films yeah and the three films are about pippin growing out of being this kind of childish comic relief character it's about growing up similar to uh similar to uh Sokka in the oh yeah, Avatar, yeah, yeah. The last airbender how he grows up throughout the he's still funny at the end but yeah. he's a very a different, more mature character. I can't help but think just how much easier this whole quest would have been if Pippin just stayed. <laughs> Pippin was important. He's important. I mean, technically, without Pippin, you don't get Gandalf the White. That's important. He would have survived. Just quick side note, just to jump to Two Towers for a second. Um, that's like the funniest thing to me, is that when Gandalf's telling his story with the Balrog where he falls down the hole and then it cuts to him on a mountaintop fighting it. And I'm just like, were you fighting this thing for like weeks? Apparently. <laughs> I just well, picture him running at a monster with a sword for weeks. Oh, here, here's a question I have for you. Cause I don't think it, it was interesting growing up with the films. Cause I never really grasped. I wasn't into the mythology of Tolkien until much yeah. later. And I never really properly grasped that Gandalf is immortal. Like that didn't occur to me as a thought. And then like I watched The Hobbit and it was like, oh, it's just Gandalf. He's just here. Don't question it. <laughs> and then, you know, you, you go into the mythology and there's a whole thing yeah. with, with, with Gandalf. But have you watching it? Did that ever because it's never mentioned in the films, but no. Did you realize he was immortal or? Well, the thing is, I don't think the movies even really explicitly say that he's immortal because even when he dies, he's just brought back. He's resurrected. Yeah, he's resurrected, sort of like how Jon Snow is resurrected. So, I mean, I got the sense that he was superhuman or just not even of this. earth. Right. Also, not even human. So, yeah. Yeah. Because it, it's interesting. The films don't even deal with that. So it that, that is a bit of character that never just Gandalf was just an old old wizard well it makes sense because he you know he's keeping the peace he was there long before this happened and he's gonna be here long after it happened so it makes sense that he's just this all-knowing sage but as far as like the film suggesting he's immortal I never got that I, I knew he was but I, I felt that the movie wasn't really all that preoccupied with it that's fine it's it's surprising how much the movie isn't preoccupied with tolkien's mythology <laughs> like it is and it isn't yeah you know uh, how much do you know much have you have you read much explored much in the backstory of stuff no i did see this meme the other day though do you remember that part of the pirates of the caribbean with a guy with the wooden eyes like reading the bible and then his like other guys like you can't even read and the guy with the wooden eyes like it's the bible you get credit for trying 
I saw Lord of the Rings meme where he's holding the Cimmerillion. And he's like, it's the Cimmerillion. You get credit for trying. I'm not that interested. Um, I, I mean, it's not that I'm disinterested. I'm just not like, I need to know everything. I do find it interesting that there's so like every faction of being in this universe has their own insane history. Like even within the humans, like the humans mm-hmm. and the elves have a completely different history. But even within the humans, you have uh, Rohan and Gondor. And where was Gondor when the West whatever <laughs> fell? And they had this history and Gondor has a an IOU army from the dead. <laughs> It's also, interestingly enough, like it's never dealt with explicitly in the film um, that Denethor has a Palantir. Like you never see that. And even in the extended edition, Aragorn just suddenly, there happens to be a Palantir there. And you assume it's the one from Isengard. Wait, what's a Palantir? The the seeing stone. The oh, one yeah, that Saruman yeah, yeah, yeah. uses to communicate with uh, Sauron. Yeah. And the film never explicitly tells you that Oh, hey, uh, Sauron's been making Denethor go crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Which is good, because the film more focuses on uh, Denethor's grief as a parent. And I think that's the more interesting uh, story, so they kind of slim that down. But there's a lot of interesting little little stuff, like right right behind the curtain of the film, there's stuff that they've left out that is kind of important. But but it's there. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I maybe one day I'll get to the Cimmerillion, but I'm just like, I want to. I haven't even done the Hobbit yet. Read, read, read the uh, the wikis. <laughs> Start there. See, that's the thing. That's why, as as far as lore goes, that is why. Uh, I do enjoy the tree scenes, is because I find the whole. The way they're described in the book is just interesting to me. Because in the book, it literally takes them days to do their greeting for the big tree meeting. <laughs> Which, in in the context of the movie, it's kind of annoying because you have this big old battle of whatever, and then we keep cutting back to trees. But in the book, it's just funny to me. No, no, I like it. It's a nice change of pace from the battle. Yeah, I just like his there, there's a There's a good uh, sense of uh, tonal uh, of pacing through the big battle sequences. Did so. you know that the guy, do you know who voices Treebeard? Yeah, it's John Reese davies Yeah, I didn't know that until I was just watching. Through this. like a, he, they put him through like box, the voice and did a whole thing. Can, can I say regarding the books, I, I absolutely hate that they're named Sauron and Saruman. It took me so fun long to, to, fun to say Saruman. Saruman. Yeah, they're both the great, R's are fun. It's just annoying. They are the most evil sounding names. I love that Sauron isn't even really a character. Like, unlike the Hobbit in the beginning of Lord of the Rings, where you see Sauron as like a a, a person that you can actually see a little bit. He's just an eye. Just an eye. <laughs> he's about as much of it's a, a great character eye. as the ring is. It is a very spooky eye. But that's the thing is like you see Sauron's tower in the eye. And I'm just like, this is textbook definition evil. <laughs> Well, it, it kind of created the the definition of evil. <laughs> he lives he lives in a big black castle by a volcano called Mount Doom. Technically there's actual there, there's a name for it, but What, the tower? No, the mountain. Mount Doom is not the actual name oh. of the mountain. Not the original at least. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Like a lot of the the backstory of Sauron is actually really interesting, uh, and he's not as one dimension. He, he is one di- one dimensional, but oh, I don't some, mind it. I don't mind genuinely interesting yeah. backstory stuff. But all that happened thousands of years ago. Looks is one of those things that you know uh, the, the scariest things, the things that you imagine. So the fact that he's just one eye, you never see his true form. It's it's effective. Last time we did this, it was with Army of Shadows, and I'm going to do it again here and make the proposal that if if anyone is ever making a greatest films of all time list, yeah, I don't see the BFI doing it, but they should. They really should. I think Return of the King deserves to be on this list. I One of them definitely does. And it's either Fellowship or Return of the King. Yeah, but yeah. I, I think you could, the the clear argument, I think, is for Return of the King. One is because if you put the final movie in a trilogy, it's essentially like, you know, you got to watch everything. So it's it's awarding all three in a way. Would you put Return of the Jedi on a list? No. I'm, <laughs> no, that's not, like, there's an equal, yeah. there's a quality yeah. argument that is equal for all three. So yeah. if you're picking the best Especially ones that are so equals, connected. Yeah. Yeah. And you know they like to have their historical perspectives on like i was thinking of this like a greatest film movies of all time list should be like a story of cinema like you should have you should be able to track the history and flow and development of the art form in that list somehow not every film needs to be part of that but you should have a good kind of like connect the dots in that list and lord of the rings is really the 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 whole action fantasy genre is omitted from the bfi list entirely which i think is just wild and yeah really lays bare the fact that it's a very um esoteric list that isn't really for people normal people and even film lovers to a certain extent because it does it ignores a lot of genres that i think deserve to be rewarded consider dear dear listener that Return of the King is kind of it's in this interesting spot in film history when film and digital were kind of film was morphing into digital. Yeah. And effects were CGI was becoming good enough to be the like the primary effects generator of a film. Mm -hmm. And this is like right in the middle of that. And it makes use of CGI, but it also makes use of every single effects practical effect that has ever been developed by cinema is in the the Lord of the Rings. It is possibly the most important technical film since 2001, a space odyssey, maybe for cinema. Like if you want like literally the dictionary on how to create effects and create worlds and create something more than just, reality on screen yeah you you can't do better i mean miniatures models cgi rear screen projection uh forced perspective every like in it is a just everything you want except from, like the technical aspects of film is in this movie yeah except stop motion yeah that's why i say it's a it's a the film school because it teaches you everything right 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 
and it, it's part of history. It's one of the most decorated films of all time. Uh, Might isn't it literally the most decorated as far as Oscars go? One of them. Well, it I would call it like first among equals there that because Titanic and Ben Hur also got eleven Oscars, but Return of the King got every Oscar it was nominated for. Oh, okay. So it was nominated for 11 and won 11, which is you know, pretty damn good. One of as the best far, movies ever made. As far as like Oscar-worthy performances go, I think if anyone was to win an Oscar from this movie, it should have been uh, Ian McKellen. They tried to get him nominated, but he wasn't. It, it was entirely snubbed. Great. Ian McKellen or <laughs> Andy Serkis? The, I think the, the scene... When I think of like great acting from Gandalf, it's the scene in, in the Siege of Minas Tirith when it, it looks like all hope is lost for Gandalf oh, yeah. and, and Pippin. And Gandalf describes uh, what happens after death to Pippin. Yeah. Just kind of comforting him. And, you know, regardless of whether you, you believe in heaven or anything like that, it is an emotionally affecting scene of this. This, this older mentor, this man, Gandalf, comforting little little naive Pippin who suddenly <laughs> found himself in the middle of a battle. And it's it's just it is never not been comforting to me that. Well, yeah, it not, it, again, you know, bringing up war imagery, it very much invokes that feeling of like holding a dying soldier and telling him everything's going to be all right when you know it's not. But it's Gandalf, the, the most optimistic snarkily optimistic character in the trilogy it's also really satisfying because so much of the previous films gandalf is snipping at pippin for doing yeah. stupid things and it's for they finally get this really this, this touching moment together well, what does he say just... after pippin knocks down the helmet in minister not minister moria fool of a took throw yeah. yourself in next time and rid us of your stupidity <laughs> great yeah the dialogue's fan we didn't even talk about uh, the most inspiring scene in the movie hmm. you bow to no one oh 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 that's powerful every time every, every time. time there's a lot of that the whole last 40 minutes is just nothing but that did you know gandalf has one of the three elven rings no <laughs> i didn't well, I, know that actually. you wouldn't you can see it next time you watch the film. You can only see it once in the entire trilogy. You can see it in the Hobbit trilogy, but you only see it once, and it's at the very end at the Grey Havens. It's on his finger. Oh, weird. Gandalf, Elrond, and Gladriel have the three elven rings. I did not know that. That's another part of the book that is confusing, is that they refer to the Nazgul as like five different things. Could go on for a great... <laughs> great long time about lord of the rings so this is gonna be one of those things that i feel like i'm just gonna watch every year i i could i could take a summer weekend every year and watch all three of these i'm getting back into them so every year the movies that i will guarantee be watching is at least the lord of the rings and apparently the treasures of the sierra madre on the same day every year you've now you've locked (laughs) yourself in why would you not it's a great movie one of the best. Similar to Lord of the Rings. Hmm. Hmm. Oh, yeah. So would you recommend Lord of the Rings or Return <laughs> of the King? Oh, yeah. 
I would. Okay, good. You, you know, it's like you have to get over the the length hump, but like, it's not like it's not a movie like Stalker where you have to be patient with it. It's long, but it's not boring in any sense of the word. It's constantly it, it's moving. It's possibly the most accessible yeah. long films ever made. It's it's a miracle. It's a miracle of movie making. It's one of those things that I always think, why don't I see the echoes of Lord of the Rings influence in movies as much as I think that I should? But it's one of those those things that you really, what's influential about it is what it is, and you can't really replicate what it is. Because it's kind of, it's, it's at the very end of an era of practical effects yeah. being dominant. Amazing. And at the very off. beginning of a new era of CGI, and it's... Yeah nothing like it before it nothing like it ever again perfect movies recommend them